You're listening to the Book Lovers Podcast from the Spartanburg County Public Libraries. This is a show where we talk about books, reading, and culture. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the media collection development librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. On this episode, we're discussing To the Lighthouse, Virginia Woolf's classic 1927 novel. To the Lighthouse captures the Ramses, a family on the cusp of change, as they spend a couple of days at a summer home on the Isle of Skye. They are joined by a host of characters, including the great protagonist Lily Briscoe. We also discuss the 2019 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which dissects the relationship between a late 1700s portraitist and her charge, who is betrothed to a man in Milan. We discuss the process of creating art, the rigor of thinking, and historical context in contemporary novels. Let's get started. why you picked this book because this is actually one of our book lovers picks for the book club yes. at the library. So why did you choose this novel? I chose this novel because I think that it is a novel that in some ways requires conversation to make sense of it. It's it's complex work of all of Virginia Woolf's novels. It is probably the one that has received the most like volume of critical commentary. And it's also a book that I really love and and have found important and meaningful in my life and in many ways. I've read it in educational context. It's been taught to me in the context of history of the modern novel uh, and British literature survey courses. And it fits in those it fits in those contexts. Um, but I was surprised to, to find aspects of the book this time resonating with me in, in different ways. So each time I've read it, I've, I found something else in it. And, um, and at least to my mind, that's, that's a marker of a book that's, that's worth talking about with other people, um, and there's also an aspect of the there's also an aspect of the book itself that seems to almost dramatize for us what it is to have a, a shared experience with other people in the way that for each of the characters in to the lighthouse the lighthouse means something slightly different and uh, is significant in a different way. Um, you know, the same can be said of what we read, right? For sure. Um, we we can come to this and we can find it utterly like baffling and and always like the lighthouse itself. We're not quite there yet, and will we ever <laughs> actually get there? Glimmers um, upon the horizon, like a beacon in the night. Yeah, <laughs> both literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, or 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 we can we can find find some some sense of recognition here or some 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 bit of significance to to hang on to so it's a personal preference and a personal favorite of mine 
And and I guess as a second order concern, I chose it because, well, some years ago, the book club had already read Mrs. Dalloway. And, uh, <laughs> oh, oops, that's sorry. The, yeah. And that's that's often the that's often the book that one reads if you read a novel by by Virginia Woolf. You might you might encounter that. Sorry, we read a book before you came along. Before I, oh, yeah. no. there was a history, a whole history before me. Look at that. Yeah, for those of you who listen, are listening, we and aren't members of the book club. The book club here at SCPL is has been in existence at least since two thousand two. I have a master list that goes all the way back to the books that were read. 2002 all the way up until now so it's a long-standing book club that believe it or not did exist before joseph (laughs) was at the library that means you can celebrate 20 years of book loving we can we will in 2022 2022 yeah and uh actually i think this month is actually my celebration of 10 years with the book club 10 years with the book club wow Minus about a year and a half in the middle. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Been so, involved for a long time and it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my, that was my reasoning. That's sort of where I was, where, where I was coming from um, in my, my choice to have us uh, struggle through this one um, as a, as a group. And it's, um, you know, it is a it's a difficult book, I think, um, because Wolf is a Wolf is a is a challenging writer. In some ways, she um, she doesn't always give us what we what we want in terms of in terms of story or in terms of in terms of focus. She's harder to trust. She can be. I found um, we've read a lot of books for the podcast so far and we talk about trust a lot and trust in the author, trust that we're the author is going to get us to a place and it can be harder at times to trust Virginia Woolf that she's going to get you there. She does. Spoiler alert. We do get to the lighthouse <laughs> eventually. Yeah. We make it through <laughs> takes a decade, but we do yeah. get there. Yeah. Um, but it can sometimes feel like I don't know. There's there's a dissonance there, which I mm. think is purposeful, for yeah, sure. Definitely. Like it's meant yeah. to be that way. But where where are we going? Um, right. But but really, it's it's about what what she's trying to do. Yeah, maybe it's not about the path that you take. Right. It's not about the journey, guys, or the destination, <laughs> even though the destination Whoa. is the lighthouse. It's about your perception of the meaning of the destination. There it is. Mm. Yeah. That's good. That's, I think we cracked this one wide open. That's it. Solved it, and we're done. Um, we're not done, actually. There's a lot to say. There's, there's much more to say, and I think I think one of the things to say, to say about the book starting out is that it has... Um, it has a, a, as I said, it, there's a there's a significant amount of criti- critical literature around this book and commentary around this book, and uh, within that within that literature, some of the focus has been directed at the the way in which the book has a uh, has a, a biographical analog for Virginia Woolf. Um, yeah, I saw that when I was doing some reading about it, that a lot of the summer home scenes are based about the summer home she went to as a child. Right. Yeah, on the coast. And, and she writes in her, she, 
like many writers, uh, Wolf kept a really um, extensive diary uh, for more or less her entire writing life, at least. And in that, she she writes a lot about those early memories and is sort of drawing from those those early memories. But it's also uh, it's also been read in some of the criticism as a um, as a tribute of sorts to her parents, who who both died uh, different ages. Um, uh, and, and at different times, when when Wolf was still relatively young, she was a, a teenager, and then um, in her twenties, um, when they when they died respectively, and um, and so you know some some have read um, the Ramsey the Ramseys as uh, the this married couple at the center of the novel. Is there an idea there that Virginia Wolf may be Lily? Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. often the way that that Lily Briscoe, the other sort of major character in the novel, is read. So, I guess we should maybe back up a little bit and just kind of describe it a little bit. So, it's a novel that's uh, that that takes place at the same house uh, and and environment um, over the course of of ten years, and it's organized around uh, the Ramsey family. This um, you know well-to-do uh, English family with just a bunch of children. Uh, <laughs> so many eight. Children. Uh, eight. Eight children. Yeah. I actually drew a family tree inside the cover of my book. Because yeah. as soon as I read the introduction by you, Dora Welty, and she says there are eight children, I was like, nope, I gotta, I have to draw it. Yeah. Because <laughs> otherwise I'm not going to know who all these children are. So so we have the Ramsey family, and then we have um, the, they're, they're at this, they're at their summer home in the, um, uh, I think Isle, it's of Sky, Isle of Sky, yes. yeah, in like off the coast of Scotland. In Scotland, yeah. Um, and they have others that are that accompany them. Uh, um, it's almost like a boarding house in a way. A bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's uh, Carmichael, the poet, with the yellow beard. The opium. He's an opium addicted poet. Uh, elderly, older man. Um, um, Minetta and Paul. Minta. Yeah, Minta, Minta, and Paul, a uh, young couple. Um, Tansley. Charles Tansley, who is uh, described repeatedly as as the atheist, a young man who is working on a, a dissertation and seems in some ways to be at least associated with Mr. Ramsey, um, sort of studying similar things, yeah. working on philosophy. And then Lily Briscoe, who is a young woman... Uh, who's a painter, and she she becomes really central to the to the novel. She's she's in the background in some ways in the in the opening section of the novel, uh, but she she really uh, uh, leaps to the foreground in the final section. So it's told over three sections, and uh, Virginia Woolf in her in her journals um, and in her some of her notes surrounding the book, she draws the structure of the book is almost like a a barbell where we have uh, a bulky section on the left uh, connected by a brief column and then another bulky section on the right and in some ways that represents the 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 way that the different sections of the novel function the middle section of the novel is which is titled time passes moves us forward in time in over the course of 10 years between the two parts of and the novel. And in very short 
clipped ways of this person died and then this person died and then this is what happened at the house and that sort of and this person got married and then this happened right and very clipped this is what happened not there's not lots of emotion to those scenes like no. there is in the first and the third section which i thought was a really interesting way to show how things have changed and progressed that's and that's one of the that's one of the the aspects of the novel that is often cited as you know the as a as a chief facet of wolf's experiment here where she moves from this opening section and uh, to this closing section both of which as you said carmenita have uh they're 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 dominated by motion and deep feeling and sort of interior experience that's really all they are in some ways it's we're moving from one character's thoughts to another character's thoughts to in the middle we have important significant deaths that occur but they're presented in parentheses and mm-hmm. brackets and they're presented uh, again in the in the background where the the house and the natural world surrounding the house is in the foreground so it's un- it's very unsentimental uh, in the way that um, the way that it's presented and and that was seen as as a, as a chief facet of its experiment and what she what she's sort of trying to do to tell this story and where to place the emphasis and what to de-emphasize. So I think that's a fairly sufficient overview of the scope of the novel. I think the I think that this is this is a novel that in some ways a commentary about it is going to focus less on what happens in the novel because right. not very much happens. Although I think I've seen some some kind of quick responses to it to say, well, nothing happens and everything happens, right? It's that type of thing. This is um, the kind of book that um, I really tend to like, kind of books where nothing and everything happens. And the only term that I've found that describes them adequately is a genre descriptor for manga, which is slice of life. Slice of life, yeah. it's just, this is what happened over a couple of days of this family on a um, summer getaway. like just everything that happened to them and which is really nothing <laughs> like right yeah right. it's just that little moment of their life their uh, mo- that moment of their lives yeah it just captures it as fully as possible yep um and so much of that again is is experienced uh and and written um internally uh, uh, as as thoughts and reflections and emotions and so on. And it switches from, in, in the middle of a sentence, it'll switch from one person's thoughts to another person's, yes. which can be a little jarring, which is, I think, one of the ways that makes, one of the things that makes this book a hard book for modern readers and made it a hard book for people of, of the contemporary readers of right. the time because it was just so different from what people were used to. Right. And they people had this trust in the author of this is how books are written. And then Virginia Woolf was like, uh-uh. Her and William Faulkner. Watch me go. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. here to ruin your day. <laughs> you actually have to pay attention in this one, guys. Yeah. 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 Yes, this does re- require very close reading and attention and focus for me in a way that I'm not completely used to. And I did do that earlier this year with The Sound and the Fury 
but I think I like that family a little better than I like this one. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Joseph at one point suggested doing a crossover between the sound and the fury into the lighthouse. Yeah. And I thought, there it is. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning, Oscar award winning, Grammy winning, Emmy award winning yeah. musical. Yeah. Yeah. The it's going to get it all. The Thompsons go to the lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. But they were doing something similar in terms of pushing the boundaries of what contemporary readers thought of as reading for sure. sure and what it means to what it means to to narrate and experience in some way or or um to narrate perception and and seeing related to the related to some of that biographical context there's also the uh the surrounding sort of historical context for for the novel and some of that is presented to us a bit in um in that middle section that time passes section where we see um in brief again in the background the the horrors and the ravages of world war one on the on the Ramsey family as one of mm-hmm. their children, Andrew is killed by a shard from a shell in in the First World War, and so so that significant historical event. And I think it's also to backtrack just a yeah. little bit. Um, it's important. I think it's important for us to talk about it as not the First World War because that wasn't how it the was great experienced. There's just the Great right. War. The Great War, yeah. right? Um, because to us, of course, we're that's our, I think that's sort of our modernist looking back at it. To us, it's like, oh, World War One, and then World War Two happened 20 right. years later. But to right. them, it was the people at the time, it was like, this is this one awful, terrible global thing and this will never have to happen again. Right, this Absolutely. was published in 1927 and there are references to Dresden and Rome and Paris before what happened during World War Two, and right. they're treated as just like these beautiful places that you have to go visit, you have to go see. Right. And we say that now for sure, but still with the point of reference as modern readers of the the damages of World War Two, and as and book lovers readers, um, the bombing of Dresden was yeah. a big part of Slaughterhouse Five, right? right. And which I'm very proud now to know about and be able to have that reference when I read to the lighthouse that a lot of people don't have that knowledge of. Right. Yeah. There's a sense. I I think that's a really good, that's a really good point that both of you bring up with regards to like our perception of the great war as, as was seen by Wolf and her contemporaries that we see as the first world war. I think that it is that one of the challenges perhaps in reading this book is putting yourself in the mindset that would see that war as the first as as the first of its kind as a kind of global as a global catastrophe the type of which no one could have even envisioned no one right. else had really sure. lived through in the same way and there's a way in which life and liveliness and the almost miraculous dimension of the ever-present moment is rendered in this book as so precious that I think is informed by that experience of, of the Great War. That sense that 
we can have these dinner parties and we can take these summer vacations, but this could all go away. Right? Like this could all go yeah, away so immediately. Being that it came out in 1927 and it takes place right before the Great War. Right. So it's people reading it knowing what happened. So everyone that was reading this story, they're like, oh no. They sure. know the bad stuff is coming and it's going to have an impact on this family based on the age of the kids and knowing what happened to second and third family homes. Like they were able to see it, people were able to see all this play out. And it sort of represents this family. This family ends up representing everyone right before the war happened. Right. Of, when everything was great and easy before anything terrible happened. And really, it can go even further for people that read it a little later because it comes out in 1927, right before another terrible global sure. catastrophe of the Great Depression. I want to sure. push back on that a little bit, though. <gasps> <laughs> because, yeah, it can all go away. But some of it can also return because yes. they go back to the house. Right. They they finally do get to the lighthouse after yeah. ten years. So it's and I think that's I think that I like that because there's something optimistic about it to be able yes. to say like, yeah, everything has changed in a really bad way. But there are also some things like the natural world, maybe, that haven't been completely destroyed. Yeah, because Miss Ramsey, the matriarch of the family, kinda holds the family together. She's died. The two children, two, it seems that they were the two oldest children, mm -hmm. um, yeah. died both tragically. Andrew and Prue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Prue dies during childbirth, and it's just sort of the, a woman dying during childbirth and a man dying during war. At that time, that's sort of like the worst way, the most tragic way that people could die, essentially. And like, but they do come back, and they don't, yeah. and the f they seem to be doing all right as a family. There's some animosity, but for sure, nothing out of the norm for mm. a family. There's some hatred of dad going on, <laughs> definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, brooding teenagers now who were well, only yeah, six and seven years old and when yeah. the first um, part. James is 16. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. 16 he's old. mad at everything. Yeah, yeah, and especially mad at his dad <laughs> yep. in a way that is really recognizable. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> As someone who was once a 16-year-old with a parent. Sure. Yep, sure. been there, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good point, and I think that um, I think that that Wolf that what a what Wolf achieves in the book is this really remarkable double movement with um, with those those two larger sections the the window the first section of the novel and the lighthouse the 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 third section of the novel by focusing. In the window, always returning in some way to Mrs. Ramsey as this mm -hmm. really central, again, foregrounded character for us. And returning to Lily Briscoe as our foregrounded character in in uh, the third third part of the novel. They almost swap roles between the two parts. They where, do. Yeah. You know, Lily is an undercurrent and Mrs. Ramsey is the the crux of the point in the first section and then they swap mm -hmm. and Mrs. Ramsey is an undercurrent for Lily in the third section. And she actually appears at one point as something like an apparition or a ghost, right? Continuing to knit her stocking even in death yeah. <laughs> from the first section. Yeah. Um, as a knitter, that was a huge concern of mine because I was knitting a sweater sleeve while listening to the book. So I could like, I had something that was kind of a mindless knitting, but I could really focus on the book. And I was like, 
does she finish the stocking? <laughs> like, does well, it happen? It's like every creative person's like worst nightmare yes. is to die without finishing something you're working right. as, as someone who paints and looks at art history, I was like, is Lily going to finish this painting? Yeah. And after the first section, I was like, no, she trashes it. And I'm like, oh no. But then she loops back. And then she comes back. She does come back right. to the painting. And that optimism. So at least the painting happens. I don't know about the... Uh, yeah, I don't know. The stocking. I don't think it I like makes to think it. that she did finish it because we don't really know exactly when she died. So she could have died. She right definitely after the war. died after they were back home in London. Well, yeah, yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, but she could have died. We don't know if she died before the war or during or after. But I like to think that she died either during or after. And she knit socks and stuff for soldiers and things like that. Yeah. She's that's sort of my happy ending for yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Ramsey. Yeah. yeah, I think that's I, I think mean, that's her good. happy ending comes with the dinner party. It does. That's like a shining moment for her. Yeah. And when so much goes wrong at the dinner party and then she's like, oh, but I've done it so well that the dinner party fixes everything and everything is fine now. Yeah. But the dinner party is one of the... I think the dinner party is another one of the um, aspects of the book that uh, that a lot of critics see as a real as a real achievement. That um, that aspect that you were talking about earlier, Carmenita, where almost within a sentence or from a paragraph, we 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 move from one mind to another mind to another mind. And I found myself in this reading um, in the margins writing in my own personal copy not a library copy of the book (laughs) whose mind we were in and and i wouldn't know it immediately because you would get a snatch of dialogue and then you would need to read a couple of sentences and then you would see oh we're back with mrs ramsey or oh now this is lily briscoe or whoever else i really love that scene because it just does it so well of it even though it's not a lot of spoken dialogue, you right. get the feeling of being in a cacophonous room full of people talking yeah. and having to like focus on who's saying what and who's not ta- who's talking to you and who's talking amongst themselves and you full hear of people. brains making noise is mm-hmm. what's happening essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like I've, I I like that scene so much. I like I say I I I guess I agree find myself agreeing with those those critics that see it as as a real achievement but i think the i think the way that that wolf moves us through that room um is astounding uh it reminds me strangely in some ways of um it reminds me more of uh some films that i've seen than necessarily other books that i've read although i have read other books that you know, where, where it's just unattributed dialogue and we're just moving from this speech to that speech. Uh, William Gaddis does this in his novel J.R. But uh, the films of Robert Altman, especially the, the ones from the 70s, they, they will just drop you in into this scrum of overheard dialogue. And it's really up to you as you're looking at the frame where you want to pay attention and what you want to listen to and what what matters more he's not necessarily making that decision wolf's a little more focused than that but but it gives me a similar feeling and there's a way in which when you're writing a novel you have to make a decision for the reader because you just can't present it all on top of each other layered on top of each other the way that you can with a film or a television show yeah and thinking of trust of the author in this section in that scene wolf was kind of trusting the reader 
to be able to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. Right, right. But what I, I guess what one of the things I like about it is, you know, um, a lot of times when you read, there's a there's this retrospective feeling that you have where you're reading and you're reading and you're reading and you're just kind of trying to get through. And looking back, you say, oh, that's what that was. That's that's where we were. That's that's what that was all about. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, on, on almost a, a small scale, we she's she wants us to repeat that move there. Retrospectively look back. Oh, th- this person was thinking here. Oh, this was Lily Briscoe and so on and so forth. It, it stages that retrospective action for us. Um, and I, I really enjoy that. I think there's something interesting too about that scene because Mrs. Ramsey at one point kind of stands back and looks at what she's accomplished here. And as someone who has held something mildly resembling a dinner party before, it is an exhausting amount of work. (laughs) It's a lot of effort because you're putting together the food. I mean, she's had her cook working for four days on this bouffant and daub, which is a, a French beef stew. And she's <laughs> dripping in jewels and her children are dripping in jewels. And she's gotten managed to get everyone who's staying there with them into this room, which can also be hard when people are like, no, I'm just going to take my vegetarian meal in my room, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So she has managed to make this beautiful space. The food is delicious. Everyone's having a good time. And she stands back and looks at what she's accomplished. And It's very similar to a later scene when Lily stands back and looks at what she's accomplished with her painting. And I really enjoyed the juxtaposition of those two things there because Lily is a a generation younger than Mrs. Ramsey and they're, they're contrasts for each other in a lot of ways. Mrs. Ramsey is married, has eight children, has a relationship with her husband that is possibly maybe kind of semi-arranged in a way. Like they're not necessarily people who like got married for love like we do nowadays. Mm. Um, But because it was the thing that you did at the time and she has eight children, she is a, a homemaker and Lily issues basically all of that and never gets married she doesn't have children by the end of the book and painting is her thing she enjoys doing that but at the same time they are both deeply entrenched in this this type of art that each of them loves to do and they love to see it come to fruition as a masterwork in a way and they're both able to do that at the end of their sections which i really did enjoy reading yeah yeah i think that one of my other favorite aspects of this book is the way that Wolf writes about art and writes in particular about painting and Lily's process of of constructing her painting and the choices that she the choices that she makes. It's a there's a way in which we see uh, we see the the real rigor of of this character's thinking on the page and and it's easy it's easy to to make them move from there to say well in some ways you know lily briscoe is lily briscoe is virginia wolf this is her stand-in her stand-in character you know uh she's she's writing about the 
the the difficulties and the agony that all uh, artists face. So I really like the way that that Wolf writes about Lily's artistic process and all of the thought and reflection that goes into that and how how she she frets over this this painting in particular and again continues despite what others may say about her work uh in particular charles tansley the atheist who is also a misogynist yeah women can't write women can't paint right yeah he also has these weird moments where he like fetishizes mrs ramsey yeah. Where he's like, does, oh, yeah. the ideal woman taking care of children and taking care of her husband and all these people. It's like, what are you doing, you weirdo? Mm. Yeah. And it's clear that Virginia Woolf is saying something about feminism and thoughts about feminism with that character, for mm-hmm. sure. Oh, absolutely. And and I think she she also registers through through Lily the the more subtle barriers to women making art uh, simply in the like interpersonal relationship between Mr. Ramsey and Lily, uh, where it's not so much that he also thinks that women can't write or can't paint. It's that he's so emotionally needy that he just sucks up all the air out of the room. And there is a scene where he does feel that Mrs. Ramsey is ideal because he sees her as just this dumb, pretty thing that mm. gets to be there for him. Because there's a scene when they're together um, and they're both reading and she's reading a little bit and knitting a little bit. And his my internal monologue is like, oh, I'm not sure what the exact quote is and I don't want it to make him sound worse than he is, but he's basically saying, oh, I don't think anything's going on in her head. She doesn't even understand what she's reading. She's just so beautiful. Yeah. She's just looking at words on a page. Yeah. 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 So I think that um, Mr. Ramsey kind of represents more of what was the common belief and then Tansley just takes it to a whole new level of like outright being (laughs) misogynist. Right. Yeah. He's just actually, actually hates women. Yeah. Um, And Mr. Ramsey's view of it is more like, this is just the society that I'm a part of, that I'm signed a social contract to uphold essentially. Yeah. And that my wife has signed the social contract to uphold. That's just the way it is right now. Right. Yeah. Miss Tansley is like, women are terrible. Right. Well, you're yeah. a waste of space. Yeah. Yeah. There is this sense, there is this sense that, that Tansley or I'm sorry, that Ramsey is, is simply just a conduit for values widely held. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in his, in his generation. Cause and everyone w- also dislikes Tansley. So we're not yeah. just, dogging on him no. yeah he is no. pretty unenjoyable as a character yeah there is this Deeply one unpleasant. one great moment when he comes down for the dinner party and he looks around and it's, he's like why is everyone dressed up and he had worn his like regular clothing and right. he was like i don't see the point of dressing up. yeah and yeah. it's like read the room literally read the room why are you the only one not dressed yeah up? yeah maybe the problem is you <laughs> just a thought buddy mm. Because, like, Mrs. Ramsey doesn't like him. She's just nice to him because she feels like that's her part of the social contract. Um, the children despise him. <laughs> like, right. everyone low-key just doesn't like him because he's kind of terrible. Yeah, yeah. 
But Lily feels the need during the dinner party to come to his aid multiple times. Yes. Right. As a woman whose part in the social contract is to make the man look good yep. regardless, which I love that that was written in because that was the pressure of women at the time and is even kind of still the pressure of women now in yeah. certain situations <laughs> right. to make the man that they're with look good. And I like all of her, um, I like her internal monologue in those scenes, especially because she's like, I said this, but I didn't really want to say this. Yeah. Or I want to say this to him, but I know I should be doing this instead. And, and it's just sort of an internal battle that she's constantly oh, facing sure. in all of her interactions with and him. And she has this one really interesting moment where she's like, I hate him. And then she helps him. And then she's like, oh, I kind of like him now mm. because she's seen him succeed with her help. And right. so she enjoys that aspect of it. Well, and she she recognizes she recognizes, too, not simply the fact that she's that she's playing this role, but how deeply he needs her yes. in that moment, right? Um, and in some way, the the um, the particular agency that she has in in making that particular choice, she recognizes I am making this choice. Yes, it is a limited framework within which I can make the choice, but she makes it all the same. And in the in the scenes of her painting and working on her, um, uh, working on her her canvas, where she is constantly fearing the the interruption of of Mister Ramsey later in the novel, who's still grieving from the loss of of Mrs. Ramsey and his two children. We, we also see this like doubled consciousness in a way where she's recognizing what he needs. Like she, 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 she sees it and she also recognizes I can't give that to him. And I, if I want to do this work, I can't be both of these people. I, I am dedicated and devoted to the work. And there will often be these, there, there are often these moments in those, some of those scenes where Wolf is writing her as if she's recognizing just a little too late where the words could have could have come or mm -hmm. what she could have said. Um, and isn't that all of us? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a real... Even now here in 2020? Well, sure. We haven't gotten any better at evolving to say exactly what we're thinking in the moment <laughs> we think it, like, like always happens in the movies. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the exact right words at the right time. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there is an acute, I think, understanding of of psychology on on display in in this book, and I think in Wolf's in Wolf's work in general, but I think especially here, um, and especially in her her depiction of of Lily Briscoe as sort of this fully realized, um, deeply reflective character. So the painting itself uh, in the novel is, in some ways, it it is a little bit elusive to us. I think uh, where at least at first it's it's difficult to grasp exactly what type of painting it is. I think in the end, the 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 sense that we might have is that it's something it's something fairly abstract. Um, it's something more like a, 
more like a landscape uh, than like a portrait. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and at least uh, within the last couple of lines of the novel, I suppose this is a spoiler for someone. Uh, Lily Briscoe draws a line straight down the middle of the painting mm-hmm. and realizes that there it is. She's had her vision and she's done. Right. Um, and I think that Wolf's account of what the painting is also supports a reading of the novel that would see Lily Briscoe as a stand-in for Wolf, um, making this more abstract depiction, not simply of these people, or not simply of this lighthouse or this house or the shore or what have you, but all of it and suffused in some way with life. Well, and this was this book was written at a time when abstract art cubism was really early stages of becoming popular. Right. So it would have been to think of it from like an artist perspective to say that it takes 10 years to create the painting. Maybe the type of art that you were wanting to make didn't exist yet. Mm. So for Lily, maybe she's always dissatisfied with her painting because the type of art that she wants to access, she has it in her brain, but she doesn't know how to put it on the canvas and she needs guidance. And within that, 10 year span she has gotten the guidance to see the way right which is more abstract perhaps than has been portrayed up to that point she's seen other examples and yes and so on yeah because you're looking at i mean if you're looking at the great war and early interwar period that's really when dadaism becomes a thing and you've got early picasso works that are starting to morph and take a different shape beginnings of surrealism and so on Mm -hmm. right that's that's a that's a really good point in the sense that the paint it seems that the painting the painting that she begins at the tail end of the victorian era uh is is ahead of its time sure and i mean you think about even for for those of you who don't know a whole lot about art if you think even about like a victorian house right like a one of the painted ladies in San Francisco or I grew up very privileged and my grandparents had a summer home in Cape May, New Jersey, which is like a Victorian wonderland essentially. Right. And you've got all the gingerbread and all of that and everything is very like detailed and hand wrought and everything. And then you look at houses that are starting to be designed in the 1920s and the 1930s. And that's when you're getting early, early Frank Lloyd Wright. Right. Which is a lot more like squares. Yes. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what my coworker so so insultingly yesterday called flat houses. <laughs> Just like she was like, There's only one floor and I said, Not always. Falling water was like three floors. <laughs> but they I mean it's much it's a the pendulum swings wide and vastly away from the Victorian era of detail and um crust on everything basically lots of crown molding lots of 
closed off rooms and it becomes open spaces and sharp angles and all of that. And that's what happens in painting very similarly. And we're starting to push the boundaries just like within books. We're starting sure. to push the boundaries of what someone knows and considers as art. Yeah. So I have a little discussion question prompt for you then. Yeah. What do you think was Wolf's goal with not telling us what the painting looks like? Oh, well, I think as with anyone to let you envision it yourself. Anytime you're talking about art without describing it, it's really so that you can, you can have it in your mindset and never be wrong. Yeah. Because we get some of the tidbits of what Lily's doing. She's got the line down the middle. It is a landscape of the house. There's one point where she talks about a flower being a purple triangle. And that's kind of the big hint to me that it's probably abstract. Mm -hmm. Um, but also with abstract art, you can really look into it in any way that you want to. And that, that can be very freeing. Yeah. 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 It frees the, it frees the reader up to, to envision it sort of however, however they need to, uh, or would like to just another bit of kind of biographical and historical context around this though, just as you mentioned, uh, the, the early days of, Dada and surrealism and and so on, kind of following the First World War. One of Wolf's contemporaries that was part of the same artistic group of of writers and artists and others, uh, the Bloomsbury Group, his name was Roger Fry. He was artist and sort of theorist of art who actually curated one of the first shows of uh, post-impressionist art in in London in particular and so so there is this sense of there there was this sense of uh, of a changing uh, of a changing art world and a changing style of art that that Wolf Wolf was deeply aware of and involved in although in her own in her own way in 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 the fields of literature right and I can imagine with a book like this at the time when it was published there was a lot of heavy resistance to it in the same way that there was heavy resistance in things like data and surrealism and early cubism and abstract. There's a lot of hesitation and fear and anxiety (laughs) over this unknown type of art that people couldn't easily describe. Yeah. Well, it wasn't banned and, uh, uh, you know, seen as obscene in the same way that, James Joyce's Ulysses was a contemporary work with this one. It was it was dismissed by by some critics. It was praised by many, but it was dismissed by perhaps just as many. Sure. Well, you find a book, and you're going to find someone who hates it. So. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. But I do think that's a worthy thing because I was when I was reading about this, it was very successful as far as sales and such goes. So her, her she was it was a very popular book, mm-hmm. but then wildly widely dismissed for the most part by quote unquote serious literary critics of the time yeah and and i think that you know that reception history how you know you can tell a you could tell a number of different stories about it whether this is a resistance to a new form of new form of story or whether it's you know the old antagonisms of just straight up misogyny and the Sex dismissal of, of, yeah. of women's art. Women um, can't write, women can't paint. Yeah. <laughs> women centric stories because there were right. definitely like female authors and female characters, but this story is wholly about 
to women right. about yeah. their lives and their choices and their perception of the world around them. Yeah, they anchor this story mm-hmm. and make it real for us. All of the men are just superfluous characters in this compared to other books that are about women, but the male, the men are important or just as important. With this, the men are kind of, all of them kind of on the Yes, in other books, especially during that time, the man is there to save the day. Yes. And the men in this book don't save any days. Mr. Ramsey is like wallowing in a boat, reading a book all curled up. Like he can't handle it. Just, just <laughs> so pitiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it goes into this idea that other books were like, women need men. And in this book, it was like, no, men, this book took the view of men need women mm-hmm. more than the other way around. Yeah. Right. So we have a companion piece here called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And this was a Joseph idea, and I'd love to hear why you chose a film and this film to be a companion to the, to the Lighthouse. I like that there is a substantial portion of this episode that's just explain yourself. Please <laughs> Joseph, explain yourself. Joseph, what have you done? <laughs> well, we all have. A, that'll be my episode next time. Explain yourself. Yeah, yeah. There, so my rationale in in choosing the film was that I thought that. I thought that it would be interesting to place both of these texts alongside one another because I think that while while books are written from other books in response to the world of books and and uh, and, and commentaries on one another and so on, I think that I think that film can can also speak to the experiences that we have with with reading in remarkable ways that don't necessarily have to depend on uh, a logic of adaptation i would i wouldn't say that the film is um is is any in any way uh an adaptation of of wolf's work but i think it shares some of virginia wolf's concerns um in particular her her concerns about the at once the the restraints and the possibilities of women's lives in a number of different contexts but especially around the the creation and the production of art Um, because the film the film takes as its setting uh, 18th century 18th century France um, and and the at that time the sort of the, the particular constraints were the type of art that uh, that a woman like um, Marianne the cent- one of the central characters in the film could have made was incredibly limited much more limited than what is possible for a character like Lily Briscoe was almost exclusively constrained to the production of portraits like the one that is that she's sort of commissioned to do in the film. Yeah, that's one of the earliest ways in for female artists, especially with paint um, in history, is through portraiture because it was considered inappropriate in many circles for men to paint women. Because as we see in this film, it's a very intimate thing to both pose for a portrait and be painting one. Right. And I think another another aspect of the 
of the film that I felt carries over from from the novel in some way, or that the the novel presents to us, and then the film perhaps helps us reexamine in some way, is this um, the sense of of relationships between women that uh, that become possible in different in different contexts, where there's this really profound relationship, I think, um, between Lily Briscoe and Mrs. Ramsey that really only occurs or kind of comes to fruition in the third part of the novel, almost as a memory, almost as um, recalling Mrs. Ramsey grieving her in some way. And obviously the relationship in uh, between the, the subject of the the portrait Eloise and uh, the the painter of the portrait Marianne is romantic in the portrait of Lady on Fire. The way that that relationship is staged for us in the film is, is similarly like structurally drawn out, and it's it's slow. It's it's very gradual. It's very patient, and um, so much of it involves so much of it involves like physical kind of bodily choreography, looks and exchanges of looks. You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. More than it does dialogue or just pure conversation. Yeah, and especially in portraiture. It's so important at this time period in which the film takes place to get it right because this is in a time, of course, before photographs and portraits were sent along to a man of a woman for him to determine if he was going to marry this person before they even met. And Eloise is essentially betrothed to a man in Milan and she refuses to sit for a portrait. Her sister has just committed suicide. She's not here for all this nonsense and um, Marianne originally is brought to the property to paint her in secret so it's a lot of not just like glances and looking and images but it's a lot of stolen glances right and secretive looking at her and trying to focus on her physicality without being overt about it, which is very hard when you can't like look someone in the face and say, I'm looking at your face to see how your ears are shaped. Like, do you have attached or detached earlobes? What are your hands like? How do you fold them over each other? And because even that can represent a certain type of stature, the way that you hold your hands. So I like what you said about stolen glances and intimacy, because normally in a romance or really in anything, that is always the beginning of a romance, the stolen glances. Right. But in here, we have the stolen glances happening not as a way of being romantic. And it's not, that wasn't really the hallmark of their relationship developing. That was purely utilitarian. It's the requirement right. of the job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. Yeah, definitely. and the romance, so the romance sort of is is carried on the requirements of the job. It's, yes. it's It emerges and, and really you know it uh it it sort of blooms as the as the film proceeds and and this sense of really truly knowing another person is is presented to us so film has a notoriously difficult time with representing precisely the the thing that wolf so achieves 
uh, in her novel, this in this internal sense of second thoughts and reflections and the, the space between your actions and how you decide to do what you do. But I, f- I find that this film in particular really renders that internal quality of thinking just so so palpably for a viewer. I think it does. And I think the biggest reason is that there's no there's no background music. The only yeah. music is when the characters themselves are doing some sort of music making. Mm-hmm. So we have these scenes where the characters are looking at each other. And because we don't have the music in the background to distract us, sort of similar to Wolf's audience, what we're expecting is the music in the background to indicate the mood or what's going on with these characters. We're left solely with their facial expressions right. for them to tell us these internal thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I was so struck by in the um, in an interview that's included on the, the, the DVD version of the of the film that we have in the collection um, is the, the director, uh, uh, Celine Siama, describing her uh, eventual decision to shoot the film on digital uh, as opposed to film. Uh, and she had to make that decision for her. That decision was so guided by her desire to show um, the kind of minute coloration of, of skin and and to really capture that as closely as possible, but also to to do the the sort of precisely choreographed hyper focus that's possible with uh, digital filmmaking so you really have to get it exactly you really have to get it exactly right and so much of the film because so much of the film is about looking it's about catching catching those glances and those long those long looks for us um and it really does give us that sense of that sort of dynamic internal sense um Mm -hmm. along with the along with the way that she handles music so particularly and precisely The process of creating art in both of these pieces is that that moment of even though you're not doing it yourself, you feel like you can envision yourself doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's really well done in both to the lighthouse described through Lily's process of thinking and how how she decides to move the tree how she decides that she's going to paint the line what colors she's using using her palette all of that that whole process is thought through so well to make it feel very realistic and in portrait of a lady on fire i feel like we get the same the same details of the process and marianne's thought process as she's painting because we can see her thinking it through as she goes and the painting right. starts as just a simple sketch of charcoal lines. Right. I mean, it's like a hexagon on the yeah. sheet Yeah, is what it starts out as. And you see it build into the portrait that it ultimately becomes. And I think that's a really good point too. One of the things that I think relates to that is when we're seeing Marianne drawing, we just see her hands. It's sort of like we are, where the camera is set up so that it's as if she is looking at it. And whenever Heloise is on screen alone, we the camera is set up so that it's like Marianne looking at her. Yeah. Right. And right. so it's very much living within 
Marianne's perception of what's going on. And I really liked seeing just her hands and a little section of the um, painting as she was working. Just one little section in her hands putting the paint into it. It almost, in a way, it makes it feel like it's more her. And it also severs her from the situation and puts you into her shoes Mm -hmm. as the artist, which is... I, I found very enjoyable and very effective. I am such a sucker for process montages. True. Process <laughs> filmmaking. Can in, confirm. In any, anything I watch, uh, whether it's a, you know, a cooking series on YouTube or whether it's a, you know, TV series or a movie or whatever. I, I love stuff like that. Um, and, I thought that the the particular way that uh, Tsuyama uh, conceived of the the painting uh, process, the art making process in this film, was utterly original and and absolutely ingenious. Um, she, yeah. So you mentioned Carmenita, uh, the way that the the film captures the the motion of um, Marianne's hands. Those are actually not Marianne's well, hands. Well, I didn't think they were. They're I not. I didn't think they were. I was like, it's very unlikely that they're That's, actually yeah, that, that she's actually hands. painting this. But what um, what Siama did is she actually found an artist uh, who was making work that she thought would translate well to the film, a painter named um, Elaine Delmer. She found her on Instagram of all places thanks instagram yeah (laughs) and and hired her to be uh part of the film and to um to do this to do this painting uh and to create this portrait you know again from from the beginning to its to its realization from sort of staining canvas to creating the the charcoal etching and and so on and so that's what we're watching but what's so interesting about the way that um, that Marianne actually does her performance is she she studied Delmer as she's making this painting and oh, wow. sort of choreographs the dance that she almost does with her portrait where she's working and she'll step back and then she'll step back a little more and kind of look and do this. She's modeling this after the painter that they that they hired for the yeah. film. Yeah, I noticed that the the kind of rhythm that Mm. the artist had of actually sketching the charcoal there's a a lot of the time when we see people sketching charcoal it's pretty rapid movement but there is very much a pause between each line to decide where the next one is going to be it's very purposeful right and that's that seemed unique to me among when i've seen others sketch with charcoal that there's that pause there to determine what comes next Mm -hmm. because that's usually a very just like quick sketch kind of gives you like here's a block that's going to be a tree basically to draw like the blocking for your scene that you're going to paint but in this case it was very deliberate right which is unique certainly yeah going sort of going back to the to the the companion relationship that I see between these two, between these two titles, you know, again, I think that, I think that in those depictions of, of art making as this, as this process with, with its particular rhythms of pausing, 
deciding the next move, deciding what to fill in and how, building up by layers. I think that both of these, both of these titles illustrate to, to a reader and a viewer so precisely how art making, art making is a mode of thinking. It is a form of reasoning and it is, it is sequential and it, and builds up, builds up sort of out of almost out of nothing, you know, towards its, towards its realization and towards, um, towards what's complete. Obviously, Wolf does this in a very in a very particular way, where sequentially we're moving line by line through Lily's mind as she is deciding what to do and how to do it and how to arrange her painting and so on. Um, but but uh, in Siama's film, we we're we're moving similarly through through time and through that kind of really particular bodily choreography that she constructs for us. It's almost as if together they pret- they paint the full picture <laughs> of yeah. of art because in um, portrait of a lady we'd see the hand movements, the actual body choreography of doing the artwork, whereas in um, to the lighthouse we see the internal monologue and decision process, For sure. and we don't see the opposite in the other. So, but right. with the two of them, we kind of get this full view of what it is to create an art. Yeah, we get a, com- a full composite picture, yeah. but we wouldn't be able to see it otherwise with just one or just the other. That's a good. Uh, and there's, I mean, there's the incorporation too of Vivaldi in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, right. which is a type of art, a symphony that is similar to painting in a way, but it is essentially like painting and sound and timbre and rhythm through time. Mm-hmm because it's an ongoing piece as opposed to just a stagnant moment on a piece of canvas. And that has a similar relation to the way that Wolf writes and the specific rhythm of her words and the rhythm of moving from person to person and getting different perspective and kind of tweaking and altering it in the same way that a symphony does where maybe you would get, if it were just Lily in this book, Mm, you would get just Lily. If it were just the violins in Vivaldi you would get just that but the incorporation of percussion plus other instrumentation maybe I don't think there are winds in in the Vivaldi but um, the incorporation of other string instruments and bass lines and everything like that creates a much fuller picture right Um, and music is certainly I think the way that music and words can both impact emotion in a way that painting is less likely to do Mm. is a a string that kind of ties these two together in a in a less obvious way yeah Mm. and music the experience of the experience of listening to music is at least first and foremost a a bodily experience right? right i mean it vibrates something in our body um, before and then in the scene where in the very one of the final probably the final scene yeah of the, of the film yeah of Marion seeing Heloise at the orchestra she has an intense bodily reaction to hearing the piece right which is the piece that Marion had played for her years prior right. on a harpsichord yeah yeah so there's more that we could talk about with portrait of a lady on fire it's a it's a complex film there's a lot happening in it there's an entire 
uh, story involving the the maid in the film that is is so profound and moving and also unlike anything I've seen, I think on film before depicted. Um, well, there's some great moments of humor. Yeah. Too. Yeah. That are a real treat, uh, yeah. especially f- from or perpetrated by Marianne, who has a sense of humor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but then Heloise criticizes it because yeah. Marianne is like, I've never seen you smile before. And Heloise says, well, maybe you should be funnier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you've never made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just the evolution, the evolution of their, of their relationship is just so, it's so compelling because it isn't, it isn't one dimensional and it doesn't simply go in, in one direction, but there are so many facets of it that are, um, that are available to us that we can we can really think through. Um, and I, I didn't know if uh, I didn't know if we we would be diving too deep into the real deep end by talking about this, but there's a there's a way in which um, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire also also has its own citational moment of of another text in this case. Um, Ovid's metamorphoses. Um, uh, you guys can't the, see it, but I'm smiling right now. <laughs> <laughs> where the other two are looking at me like, "Oh no!" <laughs> where the story of of Orpheus and Eurydice is is raised and is sort of cited in the film, and in fact, in the end of the film, it becomes one of the uh, it becomes one of the paintings that uh, we see Marianne has completed and is is presenting in this uh, salon show under her father's name but then she reveals no it was my painting and so yeah. on but the but the story itself is um is is very important for the relationship between uh, marianne and eloise as a as sort of a commentary on their relationship but also as something that they read and they share with maid and they all sort of talk about together they have their right. own 18th century podcast uh, talking <laughs> yeah, about what are literature. Orpheus's intentions here? Yeah. Why does he turn back? Yeah. Um, and just to give a very brief overview, Orpheus loved Eurydice. She was sent down to the underworld. There are conflicting reasons depending on whose source material you read as to why she was sent down to the underworld. But Orpheus goes to get her back and, Hades says, if you can play like the most beautiful piece of music in the world, I'll let you have her. And he does. And so Hades says, okay, you can have her, but on one condition, you can't look back before you get back up to the regular world. And Orpheus looks back. And so Eurydice is doomed to spend eternity in the underworld and Orpheus has to return alone. And he is then dismembered by a group of um, women who are disciples of Dionysus because they all love him so much and they're fighting over him and they actually tear him to pieces because he wants to be left alone because he's grieving the loss of his lover. And it's, it's considered one of the most romantic myths of all time. Which is ridiculous because it's so (laughs) sad and depressing. And it's like romance found and lost. Mm -hmm. Um, But everyone... Better to have loved and lost, Jess. Mm. Sure, yeah, I guess. Um, 
but it's and that is really the theme of portrait of a lady on yes. fire right Better to have loved and lost and the concept of looking back is something that we've all i think heard basically in in the context of both the myth and as a lesson learned from the myth is right. like if you're told not to look back don't look back move on never look um, back it never look from the now yeah <laughs> so that's a very like self-help book sure kind of vibe about yeah it. but it's it's true it's what people learn about and i i wonder with a lot of greek and roman mythology if there are really lessons to be learned there and i don't think this is one of them because what we see into the lighthouse is that you can go back and maybe in a way it's better for lily mm. it's better yeah. Right. Right. For Mr. Ramsey, it's probably worse. <laughs> but for some of the kids, it's better. On some level, to go back is to to realize that initially you couldn't you couldn't see it quite right. Right. Or you couldn't see it fully. It looks differently now. Yeah. Yeah. For and then sure. to to sort of bounce back to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, what it, what they 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 discuss in the context of their uh, I described it as their 18th century podcast about the um, about the story, this this chat by the fire um, about this this portion of the um, of the poem is that you know there are the there are these wildly divergent readings of of exactly the myth you know uh, and Eloise offers her interpretation that's quite surprising to say well. What if Eurydice told her or told Orpheus to look back? Yeah. And and we see a repetition in some ways of that uh, at the at the very the very close of the film. I mean, you have to imagine you've been trapped down in the underworld <laughs> and your your love of your life comes. But he doesn't look at you. Right. Doesn't say anything. No. And he is supposed to drag you back up, hopefully back up to the real world. But you're not sure it's even him. And so you say, please look at me just this once. Right. And because he loves you, he does. And that's the end of that. Right. It becomes about, it becomes about what she needs. Yeah. Rather than about his, his inability to control his gaze. Yeah. yeah. His, right. his male gaze. It his really urges. gives Eurydice the power of the narrative, which is a really interesting thing for Heloise because she doesn't have power in her own narrative. Right. So it's really incredible that she see that she sees this power in Eurydice. She wants Eurydice to have the power in this moment to, of them instead of just being a victim of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Because she feels very much a victim of her own situation. Right. Yeah, we don't in the in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We don't need um, this, you know, massive narrative framework to uh, to inform us of all of the ways in which these these characters are disempowered and limited by just the sheer accident of the fact that they were born women. We see that through what they say and what they do, and also through these like these gestures that, on one reading, would seem small, but actually are quite profound, and are um, and and are these minute negotiations of of this limiting frame. 
so it's another way it's it's a very interesting way of uh of also depicting that that history and depicting the, the actuality of it that doesn't you know it, it's not holding the viewer's hand it's treating us as intelligent that we know we know this is the this is the limitation here and we we understand why these characters would be motivated the way that they are and it's the same with wolf precisely yeah so I think they work fairly well as uh, companion pieces. If I do, if I do brag on my choices myself, I think myself. you're right. Good job, right. buddy. And <laughs> two things that on the surface they don't seem like they would, right? Yeah. Which is why I'm glad that they were paired together because it gives us a chance to talk about themes of the of both of these pieces that I don't want to say are neglected, but aren't as discussed in critical reception of sure. both of these things. It's not often the process of the making of the art that is discussed for. Um, Virginia Woolf's book to the lighthouse or for portrait of a lady on fire it usually all the critical reception tends to focus on the plot and what the characters are doing Mm. not what the artist is doing right you did a great job picking these two pieces and so as a final is that part of that? As a final, <laughs> how will you explain see, yourself? See, that's exactly that what I was going to do. Perspective that men need to be praised by the women around them. <laughs> no, actually, never mind. No. So no. you've done a great job. Yeah, trap. Here it is. So a victim of your own devices. Yeah. So now that we've praised you for your <laughs> for your great choices, Joseph. Time to I explain. Just want to slide into this chair and just die. I can tell you're turning your just real as dramatic red. as Mr. Ramsey. Yeah. Oh my God. Go curl up in a boat and read a book. Jeez. This so is gonna go this is a classic. This is a unique book. What's your What's your way of selling it to a patron who's maybe on the fence about reading it? How on the fence are they? They're me. Mm. I'm on the fence about a lot of things. Mm. So I would sort of sell the book to the lighthouse as a slice of life moment of a family at the cusp of change in the world. It takes place right before what we know as World War One, and it sort of captures some of the mood of that time without being too quote-unquote historical about it yeah it's the a a story about a family on the cusp of change yeah there's a there's a way in which the book the book makes available to us uh, the experience of the experience of everyday life in this transformational in in the context of this transformational moment and I think that the the achievement of the book is the way that the way that it plays with subverts and then I think in the end um, rewards some of our expectations for how that story might be told. You wouldn't talk about this novel as a World War One novel. It is not that, but but that that larger historical context is there. It's just, it's all in the way that Virginia Woolf shifts between the, what's in the foreground and what's in the background and keeps us on our toes there with regards to that. Who 
who is that reader? I don't know. I mean, that's not the reader of necessarily the reader of historical fiction, although although for some readers who are interested in in histories and histories that are focused on everyday life, maybe this is maybe this is a way in for them. Uh, maybe that's an angle. Yeah, for the person that really loves historical fiction, this sort of goes into the social nuance of history. Rather than the events, it goes into social expectations, um, people's roles in society at this moment in history, rather than focusing on the people rather than the event. And we might even say, even more particularly, readers who are interested in women's history... um, in, in particular could find could find something interesting and rewarding in Wolf's portraits of Mrs. Ramsey, the contrast between Wolf's portraits of Mrs. Ramsey and Lily Briscoe in particular at really animating for us that generational difference and their um, their different concerns. Yeah. Do I need to make a similar pitch for the film? Viewers advisory? Yeah. Yeah. Why does someone want to watch the movie? I think that I think that I would recommend this film to again fans of historical narratives uh because I do think that that is that's certainly one way in for for some viewers that did feel that aspects of this aspects of this period but maybe not the most immediately expected aspects uh were present in in the film but i would i would really recommend it to viewers who were who were looking for a sort of slow burn romance narrative uh because you you really have that here Mm -hmm. and it's really it's really wonderfully told um, with, with such, with seriousness, but with humor as well. And with a real sensitivity, I think, um, to the way people are, you know, to the, to the, the slowness of, of falling in love with another person and what that, and what that really means. Um, see, I would present it with that angle, but with a caveat of what we're told in the very first scene. This is a tragic romance. They don't it have is. their happily ever after. No. So based on some of our other discussions, it might not even be able to be considered a true romance because they don't have their happily ever after or happy for now. Yeah. It actually ends with Heloise miserable because she doesn't want to get married. And um, so I would say this is for people that love a tragic romance, that feel that Eurydice and, ooh, I forgot her. Orpheus. Orpheus. This is great for people that love a tragic romance, that feel that the story of Eurydice and Orpheus is one of the great romances of human history, because Mm. I'm that kind of reader, so that's who I would love to recommend this to. Mm. And I would say, this isn't a spoiler, because you're told this in the very first scene, but this is a tragic romance, and it's a beautiful, slow burn romance, but they do not end up happily ever after. That's a good. That's a good reader's advisory tip because I. Because you don't want to tell someone it's yeah. a it's a great slow burn romance, and then they're like, "Oh, lifetime," and they're expecting right. the happy yeah. ending that no. just doesn't come. No. 
And, you, lifetime, and when you start Hallmark. watching the movie, you of course know from that first scene, but there's nothing that happens amongst the two of them that makes you expect them to have that. One, it's their time period, but two, just the expectation that Heloise is already betrothed to someone right. else. Right. Yeah. So it's so in a way the the romance is it it emerges more as a as a surprise. Um, yeah. And, uh, and a surprise and that to them, both in the moment, they both know this is temporary. This yeah. is not something that will last forever. We'll remember this forever. And it could be that they were both each other's great love, but it's not something that they can ever have in the long term. It, they know from immediately that this is fleeting. Right. And it certainly doesn't hurt any less just because it's temporary. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't stop them. Like they know no. there's so many moments where they like get close and they could have stopped. They could have stopped it before it became a full-blown romance. But they were like, even temporary, this is worth it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, so in some ways, both um, both titles are this really moving and meaningful celebrations of of everyday life, of small moments um, shared between people and the various directions that that those can take so so i would say that if those are if those are the types of stories that you find yourself drawn towards whether in film or in reading you know these are these are titles for you um that's not that's not something that everyone is drawn for or drawn to but um but there's great art out there that does that thanks for listening to this episode of the book lovers podcast all our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Libraries collections via SpartanburgLibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, about other episodes, or about the hosts, check out our website, BookLoversPodcast.Squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>